Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. This is our only show for May, for reasons we'll explain shortly, so let's see what we have for you. Lucy and Jeff discuss the strong female characters found in the movies based on Stephen King stories. After that, we are off to the movies for our reviews, which this month are The Hustle, Tolkien and something called... Avengers Endgame? <laughs> Very funny. We then finish with our brief reviews. What else have we been watching? Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Lads, you're not going to believe this. I saw this horror movie the other night, a 2002 film about a woman who had a difficult life, then found she couldn't communicate with the people around her, so she inflicted a terrible vengeance on them. And do you know what it's called? May. I kid you not. <laughs> Hi, my name is Graham, and my main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Jeff. Only you could find something like that and then watch it. Hi, my name's Neil and I just like films, to be honest, and I'm not reading the next bit. <laughs> Jeff! <laughs> Before we continue, let's just explain what has happened to our output this month. I know some of our listeners have been concerned. Firstly, relax. There's no problem and thank you for your kind words. It is simply that we've been involved in a big project which we plan to bring you soon. It has been the most complex show we have put together and involved multiple interviews. It just took far more time than we thought. Prepare to be amazed is all we'll say about it at this point. Yep, and well done on the editing work for that show, Graham. I am sure our listeners will enjoy it when it's ready. Jeff, not that I'm really concerned, but you're looking a bit miserable at the moment. This is his normal expression, Neil. He only <laughs> smiles when he sees others suffering or watching the latest Marvel feature. Oh, very funny both. The reason I'm feeling a little down is I've just read through the lineup for this year's summer season of movies. It's soul-destroying. More superhero movies, lots of sequels to films that weren't that good the first time around. <laughs> oh, and too many remakes. Where's originality gone? As usual, Jeff. You're exaggerating. One of those superhero movies, the new Spider-Man, which picks up after Avengers Endgame, looks great. Not too sure about X-Men Dark Phoenix, though. Add to that Toy Story 4, the Lion King reboot. They should both be good. Great idea, Neil. Let's continue with animation. The Angry Birds movie oh, too. Have you care. seen the first one? No. No, I actually did. I managed to sit through the whole damn thing, and it's awful. <laughs> See, I, for a moment I thought he was going to say it's good. Because <laughs> it's not. It's terrible. So apart from Angry Birds, there's also another escape plan. Seriously, after that last one, shocking. A third Annabelle movie. Not going to watch that. And a reboot of Child's Play. Not going to watch that either. And not forgetting Men in Black International. How can this inspire anyone? Typical, Jeff. Look on the dark side. A Welsh thing, is it? There is also Yesterday from Danny Boyle and a zombie comedy which was rocking them in cans called The Dead Don't Die, starring Adam Driver and Bill Murray. Plus the latest from Tarantino called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, if memory serves me right, Jeff, you said was one of the films you were most looking forward to. That's true. OK, so there may be some bright spots. Maybe for now, I will take this noose off. You don't need to do that on our account, Jeff. I'll ignore that. 
Actually, I've found some others now. There's the James Gunn film, Brightburn, a horror take on Superman. And in what could be my film of the summer, the latest Gerard Butler oh. feature, <laughs> Angel Has Fallen. Oh, no. No, a trilogy, the third one. <laughs> Graham, put that noose down. <laughs> nice one, Jeff. While I try and talk him down, play some music for our Lucy's Guide to the Movies feature. You okay now, Graham? Gerard bloody Butler. That's my summer spoil. Let's forget all about that and talk about Lucy's new feature. Last month, Jeff and Lucy spoke about the different versions of Pet Cemetery. One person talking on the feature was interesting, and the other one sat in the room with us, probably plotting Butler and Gibson stories. Well, this month, Lucy and Jeff continue with the Stephen King theme as they talk about some of the strong and interesting female characters that can be found in the movies based on some of his stories. As you'll hear, some of the performances are so good they were Oscar-nominated. Let's go over to our horror duo for their views on this. Take it away, both. Hi Lucy, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure to be here. Hey, it's not a case of having you back, you're a member of the team. <laughs> I know, but I'm <laughs> humble. <laughs> and nobody would put that on their CV. <laughs> <laughs> I thought last month's Pet Cemetery uh, discussion went really well. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we had a really good conversation, some really good comparisons and laughing at the original, I'm sure, but it was it was good. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. No, no I, I agree. So this month we're taking our scope much wider and we're talking about Stephen King and his female characters. Now, I've done a little bit of research on this. It was quite interesting to read about Stephen King's life. His mother, Ruth, was quite a strong character and she had to be because King's father was in the Navy, went through World War II, come out, went to live with them for a while and eventually left. Ruth was left bringing up Stephen, his brother, eventually they moved over to Maine, where Ruth's mother, Nellie, also got involved in the raising. So he, he was raised by very strong female characters. If you ever read Dance Macabre, King's book on horror and science fiction, it's a fascinating thing because he brings in his own life and where he first came into contact with a lot of these characters and how he was introduced to it by books at his grandmother's house. I think all of that influenced him. And then, of course, he met and married Tabitha. And it's a, a relationship that's lasted about 50 years now. Again, I think all that's gone into his writing and created strong female characters. So with all of that in mind, let's go in and just discuss this and kick this around more so in the films than the books. But as I said, we'll refer it back to the books on occasions. Horror's famous for its strong female characters, usually the last one to survive in films. And again, Texas Chainsaw's a great example. Yet, with all the background I've just given, I think Stephen King's female characters really stand out. Now, Lucy, do you think that's true, or do you think I'm just talking nonsense? No, I, th I think it's absolutely true. I think Stephen cares deeply about his female characters, and that's not to say that other horror writers or directors don't, but he, he certainly likes to have them as, as a centrepiece where he can. You know, I mean, Carrie and Annie, who I'm sure we'll talk about later, they're antagonists, and you very rarely see a good female antagonist in a horror film. 
So I just think they're fantastic characters and they're incredibly strong, incredibly three-dimensional. And I've always really loved both of them. I also don't think he tends to sexualize or dumb down his characters, which can often be a downfall in the horror genre. There's a lot of, you know, like stupid characters having sex and dying, basically. But that doesn't happen in Stephen King. It's a very different kind of horror. I love the way he approaches female characters, to be honest. Okay. Now, something you said there is very interesting. You talk about antagonists and mention mm-hmm. Carrie White in that. And we're going to yeah. go right back to the beginning with Carrie. See, mm-hmm. I don't think Carrie's an antagonist. I think Carrie is more... Mm-hmm. She's a tragic character. I mean, in in a Shakespeare play, she would be seen as a tragic character. She's not an antagonist in the traditional sense, but what she does at the end of the film and the book is obviously an awful thing. I do have a lot of sympathy for Carrie, which obviously we'll go into later, but I... Yeah. What do you think makes that character of Carrie so powerful? I think she's incredibly relatable, you know. I think if anybody was bullied in school or if anybody has any disconnect with their parents or, you know, they don't feel at home at school or anywhere, really. They're very much an outcast in every sense of the word. It's very easy for you to be tipped over the edge. And that's exactly what happens to Carrie. She goes from being very timid and easily beaten down and berated constantly to someone who kills an awful lot of people. And I think it's that level of sympathy you have for her and the fact that you can relate to a lot of things you know I was bullied in school I was one of the nerds so nobody liked me right so I can completely understand that feeling of rejection from your peers and that's what Carrie experiences throughout her entire life basically and I think that sense of yes I understand what this character is going through is a very powerful thing not necessarily all of it but the bullying for sure is, is a very relatable concept Yeah, I mean, particularly that opening scene. We had a conversation in the week about the certificates of the two Carrie films, the 1976 film and the 2013 film. One's an 18, 76 one. It's still an 18, still rated as such. And the 2013 is rated as 15. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, we batted a few concepts around on that. And I think the reason for that is that opening sequence. The camera sort of prowls through the girls' dressing room, almost like a voyeur. They're all in various states of undress, which it isn't in the 2013. It's much more refined, much yeah. more hands-off. Then, of course, you've got the famous sequence in the film where Carrie starts having her period in the shower. Yeah. And she reacts to it because she doesn't know what's going on. And the girls just taunt her in an absolutely horrific way. And to me, that was much more raw it had a very strange quality, the way De Palma filmed it, to the way it was filmed in 2013. What, what are your thoughts on that? The locker room sequence is definitely one of my favourites from the original because it really shows that sense of humiliation. You know, it's an incredibly long, drawn-out sequence. You're very close to the action. It's a very uncomfortable moment, so you can completely understand why it's so humiliating like Carrie doesn't understand what a period is and that that's part of her problem with her upbringing so obviously to an average woman it's probably like oh what a loser she doesn't know what a period is right but it's it's so humiliating and I just think it's such a great way to open the film and to show everybody what what Carrie's going through you know and it's a shame it wasn't in the remake actually that's something that I, I was disappointed in to be honest now, here's the odd thing from my perspective, and, and I appreciate it's a male perspective. Mm-hmm. You've got this opening shot where this camera lingers on these women in various states of undress, 
And mm-hmm. apparently, according to one of the interviews I've just been looking at, they were all supposed to be pretty much naked in that scene. A lot said, no, we're not going to do it. So you've got almost like a soft core porn film to start off with. And then it cuts to this real horror. And the juxtaposition is absolutely horrific. It's kind of a good way to show like the, the exploitation of women in a way, though. It's yes. kind of, it's yeah. a very humiliating scene. And De Palma's been accused of that on many occasions with his films. I mean, Dress to Kill. I remember mm-hmm. when that opened in London, women were going in there throwing cans of red paint on the screen. Um, mm. So so this has been thrown at him in the past. But I think in Carrie, and again, I appreciate this from a male perspective, so I'm not saying I'm right, just my perspective, mm-hmm. is that it really works because it's really shocking. No, exactly. I totally agree. I think even as a woman and even as someone you know, who's been in, in, in a female locker room or whatever, it's a very vulnerable place to be because, you know, a lot of these people probably aren't your friends. You might not know people. It's a very uncomfortable environment. And I think it was just, a, you know, it's, it's so uncomfortable in the novel as well. So I think it came across very well in the film. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't change a thing about that scene, to be honest. And I think as a result, so when we go into Carrie, and again, it comes back to that comment about her being an antagonist. Uh-huh. Because you've gone through that with her and you feel so sorry for her, and then you go into the principal's office, he's uncomfortable with what's happened. He's uncomfortable when he looks at the gym teacher's shorts because Carrie's touched her with blood and that handprint is on her shorts. So he's uncomfortable with the whole thing. He can't get Carrie's name right. He keeps calling her Cassie. And you just feel more and more sorry for her as it goes through. That won me over for all the film. Even when she's killing people at the end, I'm still on (laughs) Carrie's side. Yeah, I I must admit, when I saw the film originally in the cinema, I found that opening scene, and I would have been 19 or 20 years old, really, really uncomfortable. I didn't see it as soft porn at all. I was thinking, oh, God, I wish this would just end, this poor, poor girl. And I think it's very clever because he gets you initially, you go, oh, this poor girl, these horrible women are picking on her. The principal's not got a clue. The only person who's being nice to her is the games teacher. But you got that sense of isolation very, very strongly, you know, pushed right in your face initially. And you then, so that now you're rooting for Carrie. You're thinking, I want this girl to, to have a good story, a redemption arc. So when the final... Uh, terrible things happen. It's even more soul-destroying as you see what happened to her. I mean, I know you're going to come on to her mother, but that just tipped me over the edge. I was fully on team carry after that, I tell you, because the mother's just a psycho. And I disagree with that, but we'll come back to that in a minute. But no, no, I I, I do think as it goes through, I'm always on her side. I think she hasn't done anything wrong. And I think, again, it's all it's all leading up to, to her mother, as we're going to go on to, but it's because of this sheltered upbringing. She doesn't understand basic things like having a period. So when she has her first one, of course she'd freak out. You know, you bleed, you don't understand why. All the girls are laughing at you and throwing, like, tampons and stuff at you. So you just think, my God, this poor girl, like, how can you not feel sorry for her, you know? Yeah. It's just a, it's an awful thing to watch. Let's talk about the mother, Margaret White, as played originally by Piper Laurie. We'll come on to Julianne Moore's performance later. What are your thoughts on the character of Margaret White? I think we're going to disagree here, but I just think she's a really despicable character because there's a lot of psychological and physical abuse here. You know, a lot of religion has consumed her life to the point where she can't even educate her daughter about basic female anatomy things. And when she has her period, she 
tells her that she's had what was it? It's like, it's, it's some religious term, and you know you're you're bleeding, you're being punished, and she like locks her in a cupboard. Why would you do that to your own kid? I, I just I have no sympathy for her whatsoever. I think she's awful, to be quite honest. Um, and I think she's a, she's a good antagonist. But, you know, that's something that I really like about her character. When she died, I didn't care. You know, I thought it was a good way. It's comeuppance, right? So I don't know. I don't know about you. Neil Graham, do you want to say anything on this? No, no I'm, I'm fully with Lucy on this. I, okay. I just right. could not stand her. I mean, and in, okay. in the book, she's even worse. She is worse in the book. But I would say in the way that Piper Laurie played her, and again, I have been watching some interviews and yeah. seeing how Laurie approached this whole subject. I think Margaret White is also the victim of abuse, which has made her what she is, which is why she's found that niche in religion. Now, I'm not condoning the actions that she does on Carrie. Ultimately, she's responsible for Carrie's death. To a certain extent, I understand Margaret White in, in the way that she's been abused and she's projecting that abuse on. Now, the reason I say that, my evidence of this, she's certainly a sadomasochist, oh, the yeah. way she tortures Carrie, but also tortures herself, and that's in both versions of the film. When I saw this in the cinema, I saw this in the cinema about four or five times, mainly because back in the 70s when it came out, it was, why are you shaking your head? Don't make you saw that. it four or five times. Yeah. It scared the bejesus out of me the first time. I wouldn't go back. Oh, no, I saw it twice on its own. But we're talking of the 70s when there was cinema double bells. So, And it's a short film. So Margaret White at the end, do you know the sequence, Lucy, where she's pinned up with the knives, crucified in, in effect, and mm-hmm. the knives have been thrown into her? What Piper Laurie said is the way she played it is, this is a woman who welcomed her own death. She reveled in the masochism of the pain and the knives being thrown into her. People become like that when they're abused. It's fundamentalism. It's not traditional Christianity. It's like Westboro Baptist Church level Christianity, right? It's it's like insane. It's taking it to its logical extreme, isn't it? To a whole new level. And I think, you know, she, she is a misogynist. She hates women. She hates herself. And that's a big part of her problem. She hates sexuality. I don't think she hates exactly. herself. Exactly. She hates that kind of thing, right? But yeah. was that bred into her? Maybe I'm finding excuses for her. I don't know. But I do think that Margaret White is not all bad. I, You're saying she's a victim of um I think she's victim a victim herself. of life. Yes. Unfortunately, <laughs> in my life, I've known people who've been abused. And in more often than not, some of these people go on to be abusers themselves. Yeah. It's just a matter of, of the way it it's works out. It's a cycle, out. isn't it? It is. And I think Margaret White is part of that cycle. As a spectator, it's very easy to look at this from the outside and sort of see a woman abusing her daughter, but it's never explicitly shown why, and it's never explicitly shown that she has an abusive backstory. And it might just be a tragic cycle in which the abuser just keeps abusing. And then there's like, you know, if if Carrie would have a kid, she'd do the same thing or whatever it might be. I hate her as a character, but you've kind of raised a good point. I disagree with it, but I do think it's a strong argument. I'll give you that. <laughs> As I said, mm. you know, many years ago, I wouldn't have thought like this. And it's only no. in, in things that I've seen in my life that I, I can see potentially she's an, a, an abuse victim herself. But that doesn't excuse our actions. It, let's talk a little bit more then about Sissy Spacek as Carrie. Now, I think, I mean, it's a brilliant portrayal. Sissy Spacek looked the part. And when oh, yeah. Amy Irvin's character, Sue Snell, said, you, you know, my boyfriend's going to take you, it's Billy Nolan, it's going to take you to the prom. The transformation in her, you know, with the, the dress and the beauty that she became 
was stunning. Yeah. Uh, every time I see this film, I've seen it numerous times now, much more than five. Every time I see it, you just want her to have the perfect prom. In the novel, she described as being like frumpy, she's sort of like a bit sort of gangly, not really sort of conventionally attractive. So I think this, the casting was absolutely spot on in that film. And certainly when she's on the stage and, you know, she's covered in pig's blood and she's the eyes, it's in the eyes, they're creepy. It's yeah. just such a good casting. And I think I couldn't see anybody else playing it, to be quite honest with you. I no. thought she was fantastic. Which brings us on to Chloe Grace Moretz and her performance. I just thought that was terribly miscast. Yeah. Great performance, but they just made her look pretty and Carrie's not pretty. But also, Moretz is a tall, attractive actress and she shrinks down in herself to do this role and I'm thinking it's just wrong it doesn't work yeah I mean she did the best with what she had like you know I I I had an okay time with it but I just thought it wasn't the right film for her you know it just didn't work whereas to me Julianne Moore because she played it straight and Piper Laurie brought a dark humor to it and she deliberately did it I'll look in some interviews on this I thought Julianne Moore played the role of Margaret White much better. No, you see, I like them both, but for different reasons. So one of the scenes I really wanted to highlight is the the beginning of the 2013 Carrie when she gives birth. That is an amazing scene that I was really glad they added. And I really like that kind of sense of isolation. She's giving birth on her own. She's freaking out. Julianne Moore was fantastic doing that. And it's something that has scarred me, actually. <laughs> As a woman watching that, I was like, man, that you really felt the pain, you really felt the confusion, you really felt everything. And I really loved Julia Moore's portrayal. But Piper Laurie was also that kind of hysterical Christian fundamentalist. You know, she did have the kind of the, the melodrama, but I think it worked. They just worked for different reasons, I think. It's interesting you say that because I said about the death scene and, and the way that Piper Laurie played it. When she does that scene with all the knives flying in her and, and this almost like orgasmic death sequence because she's loving the way that she's dying, every time I saw it in the cinema, audiences laughed. Okay, you see, I, I didn't laugh. I, I kind of got that vibe from it, but I can kind of see why because audiences are immature. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I can get that. Some more thoughts on Carrie then. It's very much what would have been called in the 40s a woman's picture. Everything, every action in Carrie is controlled by women. The men are secondary characters. The Chris Hargison character, played by Nancy Allen, she controls John Travolta. She makes him kill the pig, do the pig's blood thing. Sue Snell, you will take Carrie to the prom as an apology. Carrie, as a film and a book, springs on two really kind acts, And I say that if either of those kind acts hadn't happened, the film and book would be very different. The two kind acts are this. Sue telling her boyfriend to take Carrie to the prom, which she does. And the gym teacher, who's uh, played by Betty Buckley in the film, I can't remember her name, torments the girls with massive punishments and then kicks Chris out of the prom, springing that revenge thing on them. If either of those hadn't happened, the whole events of the novel wouldn't have happened. Yeah. The consequences of good in, uh, uh, good intentions, yeah. 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 Without good intentions, Carrie wouldn't have happened. <laughs> Just a thought. It's left me speechless. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't spotted that, but yeah, I can see where you're going with that. All the way back to Macbeth, you know, Lady Macbeth is one of the most iconic telling a husband to do things and sort of like pushing that. And I definitely get that vibe in Carrie. I know it's a, it's a weird comparison, but it ultimately does lead to people's downfalls, you know? 
So I just think, I think it's interesting the way Carrie played on the mean girl stereotype, even if it's not how we traditionally say it in, in this day and age, you know? But yeah, I've never thought about it that way now that you've mentioned the, the two acts of kindness. It's kind of creepy in a way. Yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. I mean, every action in Carrie yeah. is instigated by a woman. The male yeah. characters are totally subservient to the women. And I think that's really good, really interesting. And it's a shame we don't see that often enough, even today. Yeah, that's true. So let's go from Carrie over to another strong female character, that of Annie Wilkes in Misery. Now, what are your thoughts on this character? Okay, so I'm very excited about this because Misery is my favourite Stephen King novel of all time. Like, even to this day, I've read it like three or four times now and it's absolutely fantastic, so very excited. With Annie, she is incredibly delusional and kind of of childlike and sort of like she flies off the handle, but she doesn't swear. She says like dirty bird and cockadoodle and all that stuff. And she's very unsettling, you know, like she's very aware of what she's doing, but at the same time, she's very delusional. She thinks she's helping Paul. She thinks she's doing all this stuff for him. Oh, bring misery back to life, all that stuff. And yeah, she scares me, honestly. And I think with the fact she's a nurse, she knows exactly how much pain she can put Paul through without killing him. And that's a huge advantage that she has. And I just think she's absolutely wonderful. And it's one of Kathy Bates' finest performances, honestly. I, I love her to death, you know, as a, as a villain. I think she's she's bloody brilliant, to be quite honest. There's so much I could say about her, but yeah, no, that's kind of my it. initial thoughts on the character. Yeah, I mean, she's a, a very strong character. And you're oh. right. When when she does crack at the end and actually swear, that again is a totally horrific moment. Yeah, terrifying. I think it's every creative's worst nightmare. It's like the epitome of crazy fun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They're all on Twitter now. Yeah. <laughs> what's really bizarre about the character of Annie, and and from a male perspective, the character of Annie Wilkes, is Paul Sheldon's totally under her control. Yeah. Uh, and, and literally that he's tied down for a lot of it. And I know James Kahn found it very difficult making the film because he's a very physical actor. Yeah, and I think it's funny because you know, obviously you sent this question over to me and I think I've never viewed it as a gender thing. I've more seen it as a crazy fan doing anything to get a next fix, right? So essentially when, when she first picks Paul up and you know puts him in bed and you know obviously after he's crashed and says, oh, I'm going to look after you, I'm a nurse, whatever. I'm your biggest fan. When she finishes reading the final Misery novel and finds out that it's done, that's when she kicks off. So she's like, how dare you kill off my favourite character? You are not leaving until you keep writing novels. So it's the sense of a fan having absolute creative control over the person that they're a fan of, which is terrifying. And I think it could work on any gender, any level. It's just, it's a fear that a lot of authors or filmmakers or singers might have, and that's kind of how I've always read it. Which is certainly partly where it came from. I mean, one of his inspirations for this was, you know, he was on NBC, I think, uh, in 1979. There was a whole group of autograph hunters outside, and one of them was Mark Chapman, just before he killed John Lennon. But also, and again, I didn't know this till I researched this, Stephen King created Annie Wilkes as his version of the drug and alcohol dependency that he had mainly through the 80s. She was, you know, that character personified, controlling him. To actually create a character that came out of one of the darkest times in your life must be a very hard thing to do. Yeah. 
So I'm I'm curious to understand, you know, whether she was a pure villain because that's how he saw himself. I'm not quite sure, but it's an interesting bit of information that I honestly wasn't aware of until today. The whole thing with fans and with that dependency. King was so dependent on drink, he has no memory of writing Christine. Another strong female character. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but actually, and I hadn't even thought of that, but that's a brilliant comment. So, but yeah, to you know, the to me, Christine is Stephen King's greatest book. I love that book. Oh, really? That's my favorite. Yeah, yeah, because it spoke to me uh, about. Funny enough, we talk about female characters. Let's talk male characters just for a brief moment. That moment in your teenage years when your whole cycle of friends change, when you yeah. reach a certain age. I saw the film. And I liked the film. I think uh, Keith Gordon's performance is brilliant, but the book was just a whole different level. Anyway, going back to the point of Annie Wilkes, that's what King sees the character. So he sees her as completely villain, and there is nothing redeeming about Annie Wilkes. She is, in my opinion, one of his best characters in the sense that on the surface, she could just look like a nice, sweet neighbour. You know, she wears, like, nice pinafores and floral prints and all that stuff. But deep down, she is awful. She will go as far as to, in the film, it's, hit his legs with a sledgehammer in the novel, it cut his foot off. Either way, she is willing to torture this man she supposedly respects the work of, and that, that's a terrifying thing. It's brilliant, and I think yeah. in the film it timed it right. By the way, anybody know who the screenwriter was for Misery? No. William Goldman. Oh, wow. Goldman was such a huge fan of King to get the chance to do this. He just took it with both hands. That's why... The foot isn't cut off. He said, you don't need to do that. You can do something else that's equally strong. If you look at Annie Wilkes as an addiction, that's why at the end, when Paul's in the restaurant and he looks up and he sees Annie coming towards him, it's that statement of saying, you can conquer addiction to a point, but it's always with you. Yeah. I think her character resonates more today because, you know, you can see this crazy fandom on the internet. Okay, so we spoke about the character, but what about the portrayal? And I thought Kathy Bates, of course, won the Oscar for it, was amazing. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't see anybody else playing her. And I think, you know, to this day, she still scares me, that performance. (laughs) It's just, it's just simple, pure human horror. You know, there's no demons, there's no ghosts, there's no spooky things. It's just a woman and what she can physically do to somebody. And oh my God, it's such a physical role. It's such a... Physically demand and rule, but Kathy was just absolutely well-deserved Oscar, honestly. Like, I could not see anybody playing her. And I hope they'll never remake it, because I'll be very sad if they do. <laughs> uh, let's talk about um, other female characters. I don't think you've seen it, Lucy, have you? Dolores Claiborne? I haven't, no, but I would love to hear your thoughts on it. So Kathy Bates, again, plays a woman of advancing years. She's a carer for this old, very rich woman. And this, this woman dies falling down the stairs. So the police chief, played by Christopher Plummer, says to Dolores Claiborne, you did this, you've done this before, you killed your husband. Kathy Bates's daughter, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, then comes back. She's a reporter. She comes back to find out what's going on with the mother. They're estranged over many years. And this bond starts to form between them. And they confront what happened in the family in the past as to why they were estranged and what actually happened to Kathy Bates's husband. It's a really powerful story. It's not a horror film. It's so powerful. And there's a scene in it where the, the dark 
secret at the centre of this family. It's one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen on screen, and you don't see anything, but it's very disturbing. So the two actresses, Bates and Jennifer Jason Lee, are absolutely fantastic in this film. What struck me, I watched a bit of it again the other night in preparation for this. Kathy Bates as Dolores Claiborne, it's the foundation for the character in Three Billboards from Ebbing, uh, from, uh, Ebbing Missouri. Ebbing, Missouri. She's, I love that film. Oh, well, if you like that, you will like this because this oh, cat. Well, you've just sold it then. Oh, well, <laughs> she's really flinty, just tells it like it is. But underneath yeah. of it, you get these visions of the woman that she was and the life that she wanted for herself and her daughter. And it's yeah. heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. Brilliant yeah. film. Oh, well, well, that's on my list then. And and what's clever about it? We talk about, I don't know who was the cinematographer on it. So there's flashbacks and flash forwards in the film. All the modern stuff is a muted colour tone. But when it flashes back, it's vibrant as you've got that, you know, our life is going to be good. Ah, I love it. You love know it. exactly where you are. They don't have to tell you whether you're in present or past. Dolores Claiborne, highly recommended. I'm going to get a little bit defensive on this one, but it's Wendy Torrance from The Shining. But <laughs> she's a lot stronger in the book than she is in the film, sadly. Um, I like Kubrick. I have a lot of respect for his work, but I do not like the way he directed um, Shelley Duvall in The Shining, sadly. Okay. Um, I think he took a lot of her personality traits that were in the book away. And she just kind of became this screaming woman that didn't really do anything. But in the novel, she's a lot stronger. Yes. So it's a bit of a shame. <laughs> She's a lot stronger, and in the TV version, Rebecca De Mornay played her as a lot stronger as well. Oh, I've been meaning to watch this, yes, so I've heard. But it just it just saddened me that that was removed in the Kubrick okay. version, because the rest of it is fantastic. I just did not like her character. Do you know why Kubrick removed it, in my opinion? Graham's going to bury his head in his hands at this. Yeah, I know. Get ready to cut. <laughs> Kubrick is a misogynist. Yeah. And the reason I say that is, if you look at the making of The Shining, Shelley Duvall is a great actress. She's not Wendy Torrance. Mm-hmm. The way he abused her in the, in the making of that film, and it's all on, you know, you can see it on YouTube, the, the, the things there. Is but that if, the, um, the making of Video Bayer's daughter? Yes. Kubrick's daughter, yeah. 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 Okay. But if you look at Kubrick's film, after Lolita, you've got Doctor Strangelove, you've got 2001, you've got Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, then you go to The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, I'll ignore Eyes Wide Shut. But those films are all male-orientated, and they're all a fascination with male life. And I'd only seen Barry Lyndon recently for the first time, and again, it's the same thing. It's a fascination with male life and male rituals, really, is what it's obsessed with. So the female characters are almost subservient to it. And I think that's what Kubrick does. And I think that's why Shelley Duvall's character is so undersold in The Shining. I think you've got a good point there. And I think even Stephen King himself, he did not like the portrayal. He hated it. He was like, I don't like what you did with my character. And rightly so, you know. I don't know. Have you read Doctor Sleep, which is the second Shining novel? No, but no, Doctor Sleep, because that's coming out on Halloween itself for us. But I haven't read it. And I'm looking forward to seeing the film. Have you read it? Yes, I have. It, it, it's, it's a really solid uh, sequel, actually. And I think, you know, again, Wendy is very um, present in that as well. And I just think it's such a shame that, you know, her full character wasn't explored the way it should have been in a film adaptation. But it still annoys me to this day, which is really irrational. But yeah. <laughs> it's a missed opportunity, I think. But, uh, but I think that's Kubrick, not the book. 
So my last one, and we'll draw this to a conclusion then, is Joan Allen as Darcy Anderson in A Good Marriage. Now, I'm partial to this film. I am. I'll put my cards on the table. It was filmed two streets away from where I stay in New York. So I know all the area that it's in, the diner, everything in there. But I love the idea of the film. Joan Allen, Darcy, been married for 25 years, the same guy, two wonderful children, now grown up. And then one, one day when he's away doing some work, she goes into the garage, stumbles over something in the garage, opens it, and realises that her husband is a serial killer that's been plaguing this area for years and never been caught. So she's armed with the knowledge that her husband is more than likely the serial killer. What does she do? Now, in the normal course of events, that would be she'd try and hide it, she'd go to the police and be really panicked. A good marriage doesn't play out like that at all. It plays out in a completely different way. And her performance, and it's a very strong performance, is brilliant as to how she handles the situation. That sounds right up my street, to be honest. And if you do see it, look at the diner. I've sat there where they were eating. Anthony LaPlancha plays her husband, and you can clearly see he's having fun with the role. It's not the most dynamic of films. It's quite a slow burn. But I think the payoff is brilliant. You know, it's funny because I think both of the examples, they're very human stories, aren't they? And sometimes yeah. Stephen King writes, you know, things like The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile. Yes, The Green Mile has a supernatural element to it, but sometimes his best work is done within actual human beings, you know? Yeah. I think it's fantastic. You know, like, like Misery, she hasn't got any superpowers or anything like that, but she's still terrifying. Um, so I've always admired the way he does horror, like really humanising it. I just think it's great. I think every example we've gone through this evening has been grounded in reality, even Carrie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's great. And I think, to, to sum this up, because Graham's looking at his watch and starting to panic, <laughs> I think what we've done is we've gone through these elements of Stephen King with his female characters and shown they are strong and shown they are human, which you don't always get in horror or thriller films. That's very true. However, I would say that all Stephen King's characters are fully fleshed out, you know, and the fact that his women come through is very, very strong because, you know, I've met a lot of incredibly strong women in my life. You know, if you're going to write about reality, you know, some of your female characters will be incredibly strong women. So It's just that other writers are just not as good. Yeah, and that's the point. Why aren't other people doing it? They're Why, just not as good. You know, Carrie, the Sissy Spacek version is... 43 years old. Why aren't we getting more films like that today? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Anything else from you, Lucy? No, I think we've wrapped it up quite nicely, actually. Lucy, it's absolute blast. Thank you. Wow. I learned a lot there. Neil, did you know Jeff is named after a Stephen King horror film? I didn't. Which one? Misery. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that was a bit of fun. <laughs> Let's really get Jeff happy with our review section, starting off this month with Avengers Endgame. God, it seems like a thousand years ago. I fought my way out of that cave, became Iron Man. Realized I loved you. I know I said no more surprises, but I was really hoping to pull off one last one. The world has changed. 
None of us can go back. So we come to the latest film in the MCU. What does MCU stand for? More comic and dope? <laughs> dope. Trying to get down with the kids now, Jeff. Sorry you missed that boat 40 years ago and some. Ha! <laughs> I don't think I should take that sort of abuse from someone who cosplays Captain Marvel. <laughs> As I told you at the time, Jeff, Captain Marvel is a great film. Anyway, you're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Avengers Endgame with the biggest selection of superheroes ever. Be warned, though, there will be spoilers for both Endgame and Infinity Wars in our upcoming conversation. Time passes after the horrifying ending to Avengers Infinity Wars. Horror is right. They made this film 50 years too soon. The survivors try to make the best of their lives on a very different Earth. Years later, an accident releases Scott Lang... Ant-Man, who has been trapped in the quantum realm all this time. Scott makes contact with Captain America and what is left of the Avengers team. He has a plan which could undo the carnage that has happened. Scott believes that the quantum realm could be used as a time machine so that the Avengers could travel back to undo the damage caused. To make this work requires all the Avengers to work together, and even then the plan is so outlandish it could make the situation far, far worse. So Graham, did Avengers Endgame hit a home run for you? Well, no surprise here, Neil. I loved it. I absolutely <laughs> loved it. Yes, it I is good, did. isn't it? Yes, it was wonderful end to a ten-year investment. It was big, bold, and great fun. I mean, everyone was on form, and not a dry eye in the house at the end, including Jeff, who I presume was crying for a different reason. <laughs> I thought the story was excellent with the initial attempts to reclaim the stones and unsnap the problem that Thanos created. But like all the best villains, he was one step ahead of them and had actually thought they might try that and had uh, had done something with the stones to prevent that. So um, I just thought it was brilliant. I liked that Thor just went for the head eventually. It was a great superhero movie. Yes, the premise was preposterous, but so is building an Iron Man's suit in a cave in the middle of the desert. And that's where we started this 10-year run. The end of an amazing journey. 
Absolute joy. on to our next film. <laughs> <laughs> so, joining us for this special review of Avengers, God, not another one, is Phil Foster. Hey, hey Phil. Hi, guys. So, what are your thoughts uh, on this one, Phil? I've got to agree with Graham and Neil. I thought it was probably the best thing that they could have done in terms of finishing that 10 years of 22 films. And given that we're in the whole sort of world of everyone getting upset with Game of Thrones, the fact that there's so many people who are happy with how it ended, they clearly got got it all right. And I really like uh, the three-act structure as well. It's quite a different film to Infinity War. Infinity War was the action-packed from beginning to end, and this one had that sort of three-act structure of almost each hour of the film. So you had like the, the hour of what actually has this done and resulted in then the hour in the middle, which was the quite fun time heist. And then the hour at the end, which was basically a whole bunch of comic book splash pages and a, one awesome fight. So what more could you want? Yeah, I must agree. I thought the three-act structure worked very, very well. I liked that they just didn't rush at things, that they actually took a bit of time in the middle to sort things out. And they'd updated everything. I liked Professor Hulk. I thought it was just Great. I really couldn't flaw any of it. I, I just found the middle third a bit yeah. unbelievable. I started thinking, how on earth are they doing that? I mean, it, one of the Infinity Stones almost kills Quill, and he's half God, uh, and then they're picking them up. And I know there's an expediency, and you can't put everything into the film. It'll be 15 hours long. They had to do it in a sort of a one-hour section. Yeah. Um, and moments of, of, of value, the comedy and such like, and Iron Man meeting his dad. Yeah, that was and the, lovely. And the hug at the end, which yeah. was quite funny. But it just, just pushed me out of the movie for a moment. The thing is, I go into these things with an open mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> this film is... It's like Kill Bill. The first half of Kill Bill is brilliant. The second half is not so good. Infinity Wars was one of my top films of last year's. This is full of lazy writing. <laughs> it's misogynistic. It's... We can go through them all, and I'm sure we will. It's full of lazy writing. I've already given you a sneak peek of some go of the things on, I'm then. going Let's to say. Let's see your crib list so, of monsters. Are we going to take these one at a time? Phil, you ready for this? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the first thing, Hawkeye playing with his family, late evening sunshine. You can tell it's late evening sunshine because I've seen the film twice now to make sure where the shadows are. It's interesting because um, in Africa, at the end of the first film, their time displacement must be completely out because clearly in America it's a number of hours later. What a load of... Yeah, but hang on. If we're arguing about the time zone, is that not just a little bit Pathetic. small? Pathetic. <laughs> really that was I just mean, because, my opening I mean, gambit, Phil. It's so Jeff. Okay. But, I mean, yeah, okay, so let's, you know, you could say that's definitely an issue. There's definitely an issue there. But equally, you could go, well, is it summertime and it's actually quite late in the evening in Wakanda? Or Wakanda has a shield no, over uh, it, so maybe there's some weird uh, thing where they okay. like, keep it light for them. It's not a big deal. Okay, so Iron Man's in this spaceship in the middle of the vastness of space. I stress the word vastness of space. And then all of a sudden... Captain Marvel appears, mainly because that needs to be in the script to get him back. What a load of nonsense. Why would Captain Marvel be in that place at that time? Just ridiculous. Well, how do you know that Captain Marvel, when she was beeped by Samuel Jackson, didn't 
return to the Avengers, find out what happened, and then gone and got him. Because, um, because the way it chronologically there, plays? Everyone seems to just accept her sort of appearance, don't they? Mm, that's, not not the, as, that's not the way I saw it, mate. No, no, okay. that's not the way I saw it. I thought that, this, that she just turned up there. But you okay. know, I did like the first third of the film. And the moment it goes into this time heist is where it goes horribly wrong because you've now got a situation where Thanos dies before he can do the snap. But no, everybody still disappeared and come back. What a load of bollocks. <laughs> no, just the reason I asked you to say that bit again is because I'm pretty confident they explained the time travel in the film. No, yeah, and I did. And I went back twice to make sure I understood it. And it's just crap. Because the whole basis of that time travel is you start a new timeline, you've gone into a new dimension. To an extent, I would accept that. Except that if you accept that, you cannot allow Captain America to come back the way he does at the end. No, he jumps it doesn't back fit. into his original no, timeline. Yes, he does. No, look, so what you're saying is, in this timeline they're in, Thanos is taken from 2014 to 2019, and they destroy him. Well, not 2022 or whatever it is. It's time travel. Yeah. They destroy him before he does the original snap. So therefore, he's not there to do the original snap. No, 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 no. They're saying that in their new, new timeline time that they've created a timeline where he doesn't do it. it. Yes. So if he doesn't do it, then all those people don't disappear. Which is right, which is no. why they come back. They come back and they no. come back from five years or whatever later and everybody's still alive. I don't think we need to go round and round. Time travel isn't possible. So the nearest time thing to travel it can be dealt is with... a very clever version of no, it. No, it's not. No, yes, it's it lazy writing. No, it's not. It no, is. So, Jeff, Jeff, what they do is, is they use the time travel, they bring time stones from other dimensions, other timelines into their timeline. They then use those stones to wish or whatever we want to call it, to have everybody come back. Yep. And then, Cap- and then Captain America goes into back into the other timelines to put them back so those timelines are still correct and running the correct path. Yes. So that's why they're still in their timeline and those people come back. And Captain America doesn't go back in time. He goes into one of the alternate universes and then pops back at the end to hand over the yeah, shield. Yeah, as you would, yeah. As yeah you it's would. called lazy writing. Yeah, and, and this is why, when I try and have a decent discussion here, that, you know, you don't... Because you're so up the arse of Marvel, you know, you're, you're so fixated that this is all right that you don't accept that it's wrong, that it's lazy writing. Game of Thrones is much better than this. Yeah, but what I'm hearing essentially is is that in the film they defined their own version of time travel because let's face it, no one knows what it's like. You could watch something like Primer, which is probably you know that's probably the most well researched. You know, technically this is probably how it might be if we actually could do time travel. Or you could accept this is a comic book film and they've said we're going to tell you our rules of time travel and work within those bounds. But you don't like that. It's well, like. In Back to the Future, they go, this is our rules of time travel, and it's, but it's, it's a lot simpler, probably, to understand, and that's quite good. But I like the and way it, they trashed that one. Yes. Yeah, I like that, because they kind of said, well, these are going to be our rules, that's not how it works. Duh. Yes, yeah. this and, is better. No, yeah. and, and it's just nonsense. I mean, no, the I, Russo brothers made two really good films. Civil War is a great film. Infinity Wars is a great film. Went in my top ten last year, and superhero movies don't do that, because they annoy me. Okay, so when you would accept then, Phil, 
at the end, I'll talk to you because you've got more sense than these two. Oh, jeez. Uh, you, you would accept that when Iron Man snaps his fingers and he says, Thanos and all the people that come with him, they're now all toast. I snap my fingers. They're just like in there. They, unfortunately, you two are still here. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> I was but, disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> But so he the snapped his fingers and Thanos and all his people disappeared. You agree that that's what happened, yeah? Yeah. Yes. God, we're going to go round and round <laughs> Do in I circles. Agree that are that's we? what happened in the film. Yes. Yes. Right. That's fine. I just <laughs> want to check. There's so quite why, a lot more to discuss so why, on Endgame. Hang on. Why didn't the 2014 Gamora then disappear? Because he decided what would disappear, right? Oh, that's bollocks. Because he just snapped well, his is, hand. Right? Is this is this is you talked about on one of your podcasts recently about the monkey's paw and about the when you have wishes, is it what you ask for? Or do you get something wrong in it and sort of thing? And there's this whole thing of, you know, do you have to be super super descriptive, or are the Infinity Stones? a bit clever than that and because they created the whole universe and cosmos and therefore that when you snap your fingers do you think that honestly like you can define exactly what it is like so i wish for 50 percent of the world the galaxy to disappear but is that 50 percent of every single planet and every single species or is it like 50 percent per country or those planets that I've already destroyed half of, do I quarter those and all those sort of stuff? Do you think that he has to define all of that in the moment that he snaps his fingers? I, I or do you think... think that this is a superhero film where we should sort of try and enjoy it a little bit and assume that the Infinity Stones will take what he's thinking and then extrapolate that and do the right thing? Okay. I would say, and by the way, and the second time I watched it, I was sitting next to uh, an 11-year-old I took it who was jumping up and down and cheering at the whole thing. I didn't have the heart to destroy it for him. Um, oh, good. But, but you do for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, good. But when, if you look at how that thing plays out with Robert Downey Jr., he has one chance. He snaps his fingers and he makes it all disappear. At that point, Gamora should have disappeared because... Yeah, there's no way he could have allowed for exceptions. So so what we can say is that Avengers Endgame is not for the anally retentive. Yeah, exactly. I think, actually, that's a fair point, Neil. Hmm, thank you. Let's move on. Acting. Everyone's performance was outstanding. Uh, standouts for me were obviously Robert Downey Jr. Average. And uh, Chris Evans. Average. But, but I thought Chris Hemsworth as Fat Thor was hilarious. Yes. No. And the fact that nobody mentioned it. Sizest. Yeah. He was he was good in the Ghostbusters yes, exactly. uh, the remake, wasn't he? Uh, he was just excellent. I liked uh, Mark Ruffalo as Professor Hulk. I thought that was also great, <laughs> especially where he went Hulk smash and didn't smash anything. That was so funny. <laughs> nice to see Josh Broylan delivering another great performance. I just like Thanos anyway, because he's one of Jack Kirby's Eternals. He's setting us up for faith. Four, really? Yeah. When the yeah. Eternals come back. I mean, all the actors, they, they wear the characters like a, a well-worn yes. glove, don't they? Robert Downey, fantastic. He has some quite serious stuff in it. What they do is, I think, best is the small-scale discussions, and I think there's they put in enough of those to make it worthwhile, I think. There's, there's plenty of that. You can see them all getting on with doing, apart from Black Widow, who really does not know how to move on because she's got nowhere to move to. Yeah, and I like the interplay between uh, Robert Downey Jr. and uh, his daughter, Morgan. Yes. Yeah, I thought that was great. Phil, what do you think on performances before I start? So I think 
I agree. So Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans, I think, are the, the real heart of the film. I think they're both really, really good in it. So Chris Evans and at the very, very end is, does a really good job as old Captain America. Mm. Yep. Um, Downey Jr. throughout is really good because he's got the, the stuff at the beginning where he's just really, really devastated and giving up. He's got the bit in the middle where he's sort of found a new lease of life with his daughter. And then at the end, the scene when he actually dies, he doesn't actually get to say anything. um, And he gets to do all of that just with his eyes. I thought that was really, really good. For me, the best single bit of acting in the whole film, the bit that I really enjoyed and I properly focused in on it the the next couple of times when I saw it, was when um, Thanos is actually defeated at the end and he starts to see um, his army disappear. And he just kind of, with a with a sort of dejected sort of appearance, just kind of goes and sits down and takes his helmet off, I think. I just thought that was just really phenomenal. I think Josh Brolin's done a really, really good job what is a mainly sort of CGI character. I, I just thought they were all good. I mean, Paul Rudd as well, just mm. co- constantly funny throughout. And Chris Hemsworth just being, has been probably like the comic uh, heart of the the main series since Ragnarok um, and it's actually kind of making me think that MIB International might be half good because <laughs> it's it's got hit, him on. and uh, Tessa, Tessa Thompson of course it? yeah um, so. yeah yeah. Paul and Valkyrie, and I'm because I'm not a big fan of the MIB franchise, but I'm kind of thinking that between those two, you might actually get a few laughs. Yeah, indeed. Okay, um, that's Go interesting on then, Jeff. because well, you know, Chris Hemsworth's performance mocking overweight teenagers and things, and but <laughs> the good performances, the ones that didn't phone it in. Oh, uh, Wait, car- so who did phone it in? Robert Downey Jr. Oh come on, Jeff and Chris Evans. I didn't think they were that good. Whereas I thought Karen Gillian was good. I think I think that's a good call actually because she, she does good, a really yeah. good job because she gets to play both versions of herself and I think that is actually a good call from Jeff as much as he hates the film clearly. Yeah, <laughs> and it's always good to see Robert Redford, so I was quite impressed by that. So um, okay, you lot Carry are all on. in agreement. Oh, I don't else? know what to say. You were going to say there were others who phoned it in. I heard you say. Dale yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I thought most of the other cast did. To be quite honest, I didn't think there were that. You know, I thought they hit the top bar for Infinity War, and they took the foot off the gas in this. To be quite honest, I, I thought the Bruce Banner Professor Hulk thing was badly misjudged comedy. It didn't work for me at all. I didn't laugh once. Wow. Uh, the bit in the cafe where the kids are getting yep. their picture, that's hilarious. And yes, I thought that was really well done. And I thought Scarlett Johansson is the person who just cannot move on. Shall we move on? What about the director? Graham, yeah, please. Uh, again, keeping the action and the interest up to the last minute, uh, over three hours, is is no mean feat. I mean, it was absolutely excellent. And no point did I get lost or, or pulled out of the story, despite there being about a 1,000 characters on the screen for the final showdown. I thought it was handled very, very well. Uh, pacing was excellent. Don't you think they could have cut at least an hour and a half out of it? It's a proper process, isn't it? It and is. A- and it has to follow a certain and process. They- so- Given that, given some entertaining in it, it is pretty good. I mean, it's... it's... And to get that performance out of a huge ensemble cast. I mean, you see the pictures of the cast, good 40, 50 people, and they managed to pull excellent performances out of everyone. I think the fact that Jeff says that um, that you could cut an hour, an hour and a half out of it is, is really sums up probably the reason why he doesn't like it, because... 
I mean, this is this is about fan service, isn't it? This is about this is not. It's about a whole bunch of people who grew up reading the comics, and then a whole bunch of people who are really invested in these previous 21 films. So I almost think that there's there's probably millions of people out there who probably like want the four hour cut or the five hour God cut almighty. because they wanted to bask in this sort of final goodbye to some of these characters. And yeah, some people like Jeff are just a bit sad, really. Yeah. And no, some... I can understand people not wanting to like it, not liking it or anything. But yeah, if you've invested in all the other films or yeah. you are comic book fans, then it really was that good, yeah. wasn't it? What worries me in all good of this... As good as it could have been, I no, think, no, is, what, the, is a better way of saying that. You see, what worries me is none of you are taken on board the fact that I enjoyed the other two films the Russell Brothers did. I really didn't like this one. No, but you, you enjoyed them as kind of single, standalone sort of pieces of entertainment. And what I'm saying is, is that there's 21 films that have a whole huge swathe of information in them so you know there's loads of callbacks to um age of ultron there's lots of callbacks to guardians of the galaxy and all the various other films you know the just the fact of that um when the portals open and there's that little crackle in um captain america's earpiece and he says on your right you yes. know that for yeah. lots and lots and lots of people including myself is a goosebump moment of oh my god that's amazing yeah because yeah, it's that yes. all that investment. So there's no. I'm not saying you don't go into it as wanting to enjoy a single film. But what I think you're saying is that you've liked single films. You're not necessarily invested in the whole, and therefore this isn't that big a deal for you because you know every five minutes there's probably something that a huge like fan is kind of having a geek out moment with and that probably blows over your head for the most part or you know even if you get it you probably aren't as interested shall we jump to music then i'm a huge alan silvestri fan i mean his work oddly enough on back to the future is amazing i just felt that he just didn't cut it here as he has done in some of the other films he's done for marvel the theme is okay but the rest of it is fairly low-key i mean what what does everybody else think? I think that the score in Marvel films is sometimes hard to judge because if you listen to the score separately, there's actually a lot there that doesn't really present itself or appear in the actual film. And I don't know if that's because there's so much, you know, in the way of bombastic sort of stuff happening sound effects wise that you kind of miss it. I think the score is fine and I think every time it kind of pitches in with one of the characters' sort of main themes, like the Avengers main theme and things like that, I think it's great. I mean, I'm not going to say it's going to, it should win best score or anything like that, but I think it does the job and it does it well. I think, it, I don't know if you've listened to it separately, Jeff, but there are a couple of quite good pieces on there. Um, I just don't think you hear them to quite the extent that you do in the actual film, which is obviously the purpose of it, if you see what I mean. No, that's a fair point. Shall we go to the listener comments then? And Phil, I'm going to, may I read <laughs> um, some of yours out there? You can. Um, the only thing I'd say about my review is I found it so tough to review this film on the day of release because I was so desperately trying to not spoil anything. So you said, any negatives? Not if you're a fan, no. But if you aren't, then I suspect you might find quite large sections of the film superfluous because you won't get that warm, fuzzy feeling of recognition throughout. 
Phil, that's the truest thing you've ever written. <laughs> well, I think I think I said that almost just a minute ago as well. So, yeah, good job. I, I have the same thought at yeah. like a few months that, apart. That, that was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so, Decker said, loved the first third. So did I. I've got to admit, the first third was great. Seeing the nightmare for the five years after the snap. Good. Emotional film. Pleased with deaths, but should have been more. A good end to the MCU, but unfortunately, it isn't. Yeah, more to come. The good thing with the MCU is a lot of it's now going to end up on that Disney Channel, which I won't have to see. I'm putting a bet down now that when the Disney Channel arrives in the UK, Jeff will be there. Almost the first. first. Yeah. It's an addiction, Jeff. Just lean into it. Sum up. Sum up. So, no. Okay, well, to me, this is the new Avatar. You know, it, it'll become the top grossing film of all time. It's, what, 180 million off at the moment, the figures I saw yeah. earlier today. Yeah. Um, but it will become the top grossing film of all time. And in a year or so, it'll be reviled because it <laughs> clearly doesn't cut the mustard. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be reviled. I thought it was the best ending to uh, that 10-year investment. Yeah, I mean, bar a couple of nickels that couple I had. Of, yeah, but then... But there's a cinematic universe, apparently. It's an in- independent film company. Um, started with the loans from Merrill Lynch. Oh, you right, know that. Okay. Anyway, the people there deserve huge amount of praise for keeping control of... Behemoth, really. Yeah, it is absolute absolutely monster. huge. And it's a great way to end the 21-22 film series. Yeah. Obviously, phase it. four to come. I've got to agree with Neil. I um, have a few niggles as well. I read the comics when I was seven <laughs> and didn't stop, Jeff. Just to watch all of those characters from my childhood projected up on the big screen and done by A-list actors yes. and done properly and well. Respectfully as well, and wasn't it? And to build up from sort of a single guy in a cave bashing out a suit of armour to end up in a cosmic universe period of 10 years and for it all linked together and all to make sense is just wonderful. Okay, so things on my mind right now is I think that one, Jeff is probably... Just like that scene in the film where um, Thor is explaining the plot to the Dark World, and Paul Rudd is um, is uh, myself, Graham, and Neil. Yeah, everybody else in the room just going, "What on earth are you talking about? Stop talking!" I think that's that's what's happening. Um, <laughs> nice, nice uh, reference. Nice reference. Yeah, and uh, and I think that a film that has i mean i would be doing massive spoilers anyway i feels a bit feels a bit weird to say this but a film that has moments in it like on your right um captain america uh picking up mjolnir um and and for absolutely loving it as well and just that that final moment the i am i am man moment as well i just think all those things it's just it's just great I thought it was really good. And I I just want to see what happens next, really. I want to see what they do next. I hope that that they can move on with um like the next phase and uh do something just as good. Phil, thank you very much for joining us for this. You're welcome. I, I was uh I thought it'd be fun and I wasn't <laughs> wrong. <laughs> I, I felt I lost. Tell me a story. It's a story about journeys. The journeys we take to prove ourselves. It's about inventions. It's about potent magic. Magic beyond anything anyone has ever felt before. About what it means to love and to be loved. 
have courage. It's about fellowship. At last, lads, we are back in the real world with a true story. About a man who is famous today for his stories of dragons and magical rings. Careful at where you are going with that comment on rings, Graham, magical or otherwise. Phrasing, people. <laughs> are we doing phrasing? Are we doing phrasing? <laughs> Jeff, only you could introduce such a crude innuendo into one of the greatest stories of all time. Nice one, Graham. Anyway, back to the film. <laughs> Tolkien tells the story of the early years of writer John Rowland Rule Tolkien, from rural English life to his time in Edgbaston and from there to college. Those college years were to form a strong friendship with three other young lads and their creation of the TCBS, Tea Club and Bavorian Society, a friendship that continued into the First World War and was to help shape, as Graham has said, one of the greatest stories of all time, The Lord of the Rings. Neil, as a biography and an understanding of the inspiration of that time, did the movie teach you anything about Tolkien? Well, definitely loads of detail about Lancashire, Birmingham, his friends, obviously the TCBS, uh, the war, especially in the aftermath. Yeah, no, quite enjoyable, really. So, OK, what about you, Greg? Oh, I was in heaven. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Despite all the very obvious flaws, it was charming in that very old-fashioned pre-World War One era. I learned a few things that I didn't know about the author, did not realise that he was an orphan and that his mother died so young. All in all, it was charming, very well put together. I thought their take on the whole thing was brilliant. The, the bonding of the young lads, the horrors of war, the sort of the breaking of the fellowship in that. I just thought it was all just great. It's not a great movie. It's really not a great movie. But it's one for of those me, things. If, it was lovely. If it had been on BBC in yes. six episodes or eight episodes or something like that, I think it would be really, really good. Good, but it wasn't particularly cinematic. Now, you're a words I don't normally say. Neil, I think you make a good point there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was wondering uh, what was going on. Yeah, let me just phone the Pope. <laughs> that, that is a miracle. That is a miracle. I do yeah. think this is a film. This is a film that's aimed at the Downton Abbey Brigade. So oh, a, no, 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 no. It's aimed at the six episode. J.R. Tolkien. No, but it's filmed in a style that would encourage those that believe they should have a butler to come out to the cinema. I think as a biography. It's a bit light in things, but I think as a... That's what I mean. It could be on BBC yeah. or ITV and it'd be perfect. But I think, under, better. I think underneath that, as a study of ideas, particularly an inspiration of how language works, it is much better. And those are the scenes. There's two scenes in particular, which we'll come on and talk about when we talk on script, which I really took away from the film. And they really almost fall outside the biographical elements. But I do think overall, it's fun, it's lightweight. But it's an interesting companion piece to the Lord of the Rings films. It's interesting that I know exactly which two scenes you mean. The one where he's speaking to his old professor and the one in the restaurant where he says Salador. Yes, the Salador sequence, I think, is just wonderful. Yeah, and those were actually the two standout sequences in the movie. And, and as, again, to go back to Neil's point, yeah, I agree. A six-part drama, 
on uh, the BBC would have been perfect for this. But it's not that cinematic. Not, they tried to make material it cinematic. for six parts, though. Oh, all right, okay, six, three, two, one. So let's go on and talk about the actors. And do you think Nicholas Holt was good? I thought he was really good. I mean, he's always good, isn't he? Yeah, I, 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 I like good. I like Nicholas Holt, and his scenes with Lily Collins worked really well. Yes, she was excellent, actually. And I mean, I can't stand her father as a musician, but she was good. <laughs> Don't you diss Sir Phil? <laughs> Sir Phil. Sir Phil. He isn't. He should be. I sent a vote in. For he was good in Genesis, but after that, he just went to pot. Uh, sorry, Buster. <laughs> So the TCBS, I thought, was the, uh, just to interrupt you two uh, uh, discussing Phil Collins, um, the TCBS together worked really well. There are funny moments, and there are some really touching moments as well as, the, as they're, as they're um, in the, when they're in the tea room. And <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was, that, that worked particularly well. The first third is absolutely. Do you re- mean Barovian? The Barovian. Oh, Thank you for correcting uh, uh, me. I'm there, but but I do agree with you. I think that the ensemble playing of them, both as when they were younger and when they were slightly older, was great. And all pushing each other in each in different directions as well. Whether that was entirely true or not, it doesn't matter. It just sort of it came out as uh, extremely good. Where and, they, and it, they took him in, yeah, and it was very boyish. I yes. thought there was lots of ribbing in there. There was lots of funny moments where they were picking on one another, but. You know, they never really had a downer on Tolkien for not having any money. They were obviously all, the rest of them were from very wealthy families and he was broke. But they did in the beginning and and that's one part, you know, when he got into the fight with um, the younger lad. Yes. um, On the rugby pitch that sort of overspilled. Mm. But... Again, I mean, for me, one but of the standout isn't, isn't that the purpose of rugby? Yes, it was. I love that line. Isn't it? It was just a game of rugby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But I thought Anthony Boyle, who played the older Jeffrey Smith, was good. So, no, performances are competent, and a couple of them stood out. I thought the director was an interesting choice. And what do you think on this, guys? I mean, yeah. it's first English-language film. I thought he did very well, particular scenes in Birmingham and the introduction of the languages. And Well, I think the theme of the film is communication. We've spoken about the language, the cellar door sequence. Yeah. We spoke about the professor. But I think the other the, the other third sequence is when he's speaking to Jeffrey Smith's mother and she tells that there was no communication between her and the son. That was and, remarkable, wasn't it? Yeah, and she can't hide her grief at that point in time. No. I thought, again, everything to do with communication in this film was wonderful. The biography stuff. Chocolate box. I didn't particularly like the the scenes in the trenches. I just thought they laid it on too thick. It was, yeah, just seeing, a, as you said, it came out and you said it, it was a Balrog. I mean, it was showing the, 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 the orcs, it was showing um, <laughs> the uh, charging Sauron, and, and then yeah. suddenly, as you said, it was the, there was a, there was a Balrog, and it was. I just thought, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I, if you can read a thousand pages of the Lord of the Rings, you can understand a little bit of imagery, and I don't need it. I slightly disagree, as I, this is my point. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I thought the first world war standard, not want. Yeah, I. <laughs> The, the Sam was laying it on with the trowel. Sam, going through but, the trenches with a guy called Sam. Yeah. <laughs> yes, was just it was a, a bit too It much. was too obvious, but, wasn't but it? But yeah. the look of the film reminded <laughs> me of what I've seen of They Shall Not Grow Old. And yeah, I thought yeah. The, the, yeah. You know, the decoration, the, the showing of the trenches, I thought 
that grubbiness, that foulness uh, of being at the front lines in World War One. I. I thought they captured that quite well. I mean, it started getting me irritated with the um, the, the imagery, but that yes, you're right. The actual s- trenches were horrible. The way he was lying with his feet in that pool <clears throat> of blood and the yeah. And and I mean, I suppose they were the fevered imaginings because he was suffering from trench fever. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so they yeah. were fevered dreams, which, which give an opportunity to bring in a lot of visual effects. I mean, what did you think of that? I thought the visual effects for the the level of budget they had. I thought the visual effects were very good. Yeah, I liked the stuff in the trenches. Uh, I'd liked the imagery to have been dialed back a bit. I thought it was just too full in your face. But then again, I'm a huge fan, and I've read the books many times, and I've read all all the additional books. So. Yeah. So I just want to move on to something I particularly liked, Thomas Newman's score, the first great music score of the year. I thought it was tremendous. I I am genuinely making an effort to listen to the score of films because you keep banging on about it, Jeff. But I was actually pleasantly surprised because I thought, oh, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. This is adding to it. Unfortunately, ruined at one point for me in the film because it was a beautiful piece of music and where I was sitting, everybody in the audience burst out laughing because there was a letter on a mantelpiece and the address was... Charlton Kings. Charlton Kings in Cheltenham, yeah. which we all know and we all roared with laughter during this beautiful piece of music. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think Newman takes the Baroque of his Little Women score and just makes it much more intimate. I I thought it was just just incredible. I mean, I would hope that come this time next year we'll be talking of Thomas Newman picking up the Oscar for it. I think it's that good. Wow, really? You think it's Oscar stuff? I think it's Oscar stuff. Maybe I should listen to it again. I've mentioned it before. I I struggle to hear the the words, so I... uh... I'll just concentrate on that. So I will duck out of any music discussion. So, Lance, do you want to sum up? I was charmed by it. Um, I thought some of it was a little irritating, but all in all, it was just great fun for me. I just enjoyed it. I'm very sad to see that the Tolkien family and his biographer have disowned the film because I didn't think it was that bad, but no, hey. No. I don't think they've even saw, they even saw it, did they? They didn't even see it, no. They haven't even, you know, so they're basically they've disowned it without seeing it, which is always a bad move. But I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And, I, and guess what? I'm going to watch it again when it comes on a streaming mm. service. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. I think, as I said, I think as a biopic, it has, it's not great. It's light and sketchy. But I think as a film that, that talks about language and communication mm. and, and going down to that level with the actors that you've got, it's really, really well worth seeing. And I think if you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings films, then this is definitely one to catch yeah, up with. Yeah, it filled in a few things. And it, it, yes, and it, it was, as you say, good in patches. I mean, there were, there were some subtle bits. I loved the bit where they... Wagner's ring, they yes. go to Wagner's ring, and, and someone says a story should never take six hours to tell, and obviously it's over nine hours in the Lord of the Rings films. Um, a little subtle stuff we like that was quite good. Yeah, I'll watch it again. Maybe even just listen to it for the music if you're uh, if you think it's that good. Yeah. If you like Tolkien. Try other biopics about writers. My Brilliant Career, the autobiography of Miles Franklin. My Left Foot, autobiography of uh, Christy Brown. 
Brilliant, brilliant film. Il, yep. Il Postino, The Postman, Chilean poet Pablo Neruda, Wilde, obviously Oscar Wilde. There are others by Os- about Oscar Wilde. I quite like that one. Uh, Angela's Ashes, Frank McCourt. Too, Actually, it's too a terrible sad. film. Too it's sad. A, probably just read the book. Read the book. The <laughs> film is very, very sad. <laughs> the film is, really isn't as good as the book. Oh, uh, now we review The Hustle. I'll just get a glass of water, please. I have to save all my money because I'm here to find my sister. She's been taken. Taken? Like? Like by men who sell hot white virgins to kajillionaires on yachts. I am very moved by your story. Order anything you like. I'll have a club sandwich and an order of fries. Two slices of cake. Do you want any cake? No. Three slices of cake and a Diet Coke. Impressive. I'm a con artist. Sisters in arms. How small time I was until I met you. Penny. Why are women better suited to the calm than men? Because we're used to faking it. Because no man will ever believe a woman is smarter than he is. Is it valuable? $500,000. I like it because it's shiny. Men always underestimate us, and that is what we use. Get away! Oh, that was unexpected. That clip sounds exciting and fun. Graham, listening to the latest on Brexit sounds fun when you have to put up with Jeff and his crazy ways in his recording sessions. <laughs> Good point. I knew there was a reason why I removed all sharp objects from the table. <laughs> Although if we have another review session like Avengers Endgame, I'm sure I can use the end of my mic stand to silence him. (laughs) And on that note, let's return to The Hustle, a remake of the 80s comedy Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Which itself was a remake of the Marlon Brando's film Bedtime Story. The twist this time is, like the recent Ghostbusters reboot, making the protagonists female. Penny, Rebel Wilson, is a small-time grifter whose luck with her latest scam runs out, resulting in her leaving America for Europe. In Europe, she heads for the home of the ultra-rich, the small French village of Beaumont-sur-Mer. En route, Penny meets the very English and seemingly upper-class Josephine Chesterfield Hathaway. Except Josephine is also a con artist, a very good and successful one, who lives in Beaumont-sur-Mer. The last thing Josephine needs is competition, so she does all she can to stop Penny making it to the French village. However, Penny is determined, and soon the battle lines are drawn as the two agree on a contest to prove who is the ultimate con artist. Jeff, does this match up to the very funny Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Well, not exactly, but it's not as bad as the reviews have been calling it. It actually is fun throughout. I, I laughed throughout, and I know Neil did because he sat alongside me. I don't think he was laughing at anything other than what was on the screen. It was much more scripted than I thought it would be. Other than Rebel Wilson, who we'll go on to talk about in a moment, I thought the cast were great. So I am really surprised at the negative reaction. It's very funny. Yeah, I, I was stunned as well. I mean, I went into this movie with rock-bottom expectations. I'd read a, a couple of reviews who absolutely hated it, and I was pleasantly surprised. It was fine. It's not as bad as most critics have branded it. I laughed throughout the entire film. Again, I was in a 
packed cinema and people were really having a great time with this movie. I, I loved the two leads and I thought the deliberate bad accents from Hathaway were very clever because, as we've seen her in other films, nail the British accent. We were all in on the joke. I just loved it. Yes, of course, it's been unfairly reviewed by critics and I laughed out loud several times, but it really doesn't have the wit of dirty, rotten scoundrels. It just prefers the obvious and the crude, which is quite funny sometimes. But, but, it but just, so does that's dirty, all rotten it was. scoundrels. No, not as much. I think and a lot of Ruprecht in that, but this is it's constant. I disagree. I disagree. And it was funny, but I just it's not that great a film, I don't think. I think it's um, a rework for a modern audience, is mm. how I saw it. I mean, yeah. not many people are going to go back and watch Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. No. No, but I think they will, and they'd get a kick out of it. But what I'm saying is, I sat alongside Neil in the cinema, we both laughed consistently throughout. It's a comedy. That's a tick in the box. Neil, I, I was several there. Times. I laughed several times, yes, out loud, which is, a, which is a signal that, yes, it probably is a good comedy. But it wasn't that great, was it? I'm just missing the point. It's I laughed several times. Well, you can. But it's not I mean, it was just crude jokes. OK. Sometimes Graham, you need a bit that, of that wit audience? in there as well. Yeah, and I think it had that. But we'll come to that really? in a minute. Yes, I do. I think it, it, it wasn't it's exactly subtle. It doesn't need to be subtle. Some Like It Hot isn't subtle, but it's still funny. Um, no, it's not, if you look at it. You said... <laughs> yeah, go back and look at it, then. I am definitely going to have to go back and look at it. Some Like It Hot. Yeah, it's guys dressing up as women. You can't get more crude than that. Um, so uh, yeah, your audience, cool. when you saw it... You had they were all we young. Didn't, they were all young? Yes. Yeah. OK, so... I'm going to flip forward same, to my comments. And for in the, the youngest... same way that Tolkien was for the people who are old and people who are, uh, as you said, have butlers or expecting butlers, this was for very young people. No, because the young youngest audience. person who sent in listener comments, Bex, turned around and said, it's shit. <laughs> that is literally what she said. And the older, the people like us, the older audience is the more discerning. Oh, they all loved it. Oh, well, you know, just... uh, we can we can look. I'm going to just go in then. Just I've got some other things to say, but I just want to just bring out these listener comments, right? Sarah really liked it. Good, lighthearted entertainment. Phil, in terms of plot, aside from the opening introductions to our two leads, the story sticks closely to the 1988 film. So that yes, it does. Yeah. It yeah. does stick yeah. to so, almost yeah. exactly, doesn't it? Yeah. Rebel Wilson provides a standard crude brand of humour, whilst Anne Hathaway is the absolute star of the film. Her costumes alone are pretty impressive, but the fun she has with her accent and superiority complex is infectious. Do you I disagree think, with that? I don't think Michael Caine can be bettered. I think Michael Caine was a lot better. I just she irritated me after a bit. Who, Anne Hathaway? Anne Hathaway. Michael Caine's daughter? Michael Caine's daughter. Yes. You've not seen Interstellar? Oh, shit. Um, anyway, carry on. One of the things I really liked about this, and it just warmed me to it straight away, the opening scene involves Timothy Simons, one of my favourite supporting actors. You know him from oh, Veep. Oh, yes, yes, from Veep, yes. Plays, plays um, Jonah Ryan in yeah. Veep. And yeah. that sequence of him at the bar being set up by Penny, the Rebel <laughs> Wilson character. Yes. And even when the police explain to him the con that's going on, he still doesn't grasp it yeah. because in his greedy way, he still wants the dream that she's trying to sell him. I thought it was hysterical. I also love the fact that you've got somebody like Dean Norris, 
normally in TV shows, or you like Under the Dome, where he plays the heavy. Mm. Um, does this sort of deadpan comic routine where he's first introduced to the princess yeah. and this horror on his face as he realises what he what sort of family he could be getting in with. That sort of thing I thought was really good. And as an aside, something that did make me smile, uh, and I do agree with both Phil on both Rebel and Anne Hathaway, but I did. I would like to bring out Alex Sharp, who plays the young lad in the film, is almost a spitting image of Chris Addison and almost acted like him as well uh, in the part the he was playing. The director picks him, he looks like himself. Yeah, exactly like him, yeah. So, uh, no, I thought that was good. What, what do you think of the acting? I thought, I loved it. I, I again... I I can never comment on Anne Hathaway because I'm just besotted by the woman and she made <laughs> she made one I watched, of my I watched Ocean's Eight the uh, yeah. yesterday and I just thought I did uh, yeah she is good in it She's and lovely. she plays dumb quite well yeah and uh, she made a film last year small film Colossus which was a little indie film she made and she was fantastic in that and that everybody should go and see that film. It's great. What's that about again? That's know, again that where she could control big mech robots crushing yes. Yes, uh, that's right. cities yes. in Japan or China or somewhere. Yeah, yes, really, it was really, really funny, film. very interesting about control. And, 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 and it got and, very dark at the end in a way I did not expect. Oh, yeah, it's a very twisty-turny film. Very good. Um, I loved her. I thought there was just some... Great little bits. I I liked the the sort of the Essex female uh, massive who came down and and sorted Rebel Wilson out and gl- super glued her hand to the wall. That was funny. I liked the um, and the, and the, the butler. butler. Yeah, I liked the butler. The butler was, the butler was great. Uh, I haven't seen anybody play that really grumpy butler since Arthur. Arthur. Yeah. Yes, with. Um, John Gilgood. John Gilgood played Arthur's butler there. It was exa- he was just riffing off that, and I enjoyed that. And that scene where he plays that, you said, oh, we're going to shoot the peasants. Don't you mean pheasants? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that was in the trailer. Yeah, yes. But uh, I didn't see the trailer for seeing the, the film. Tra- that was in the trailer. I, I mean, but, Rebel, but, Rebel Wilson is Rebel Wilson. She doesn't she, play she, any she other was character. Terrible. She was and she, terrible. She, she's, it's the same jokes repeated over and over again. And Hathaway's English accent was good, but then she just, I don't know, she just irritated me. Oh, Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway. But that's it the just point went, of the character she's meant to, and the English and then, accent is slightly off. And improv. Oh, yeah. Improv, no. really? And who was improving? They were all improving. No, just, just Rebel Wilson. Yeah. Right. But, but I thought Anne Hathaway stuck to script. She knew what she was playing. Yeah, and um, the cons were good. I thought the, the cons, cons were, were good. Clever. But Rebel Wilson, yeah, okay. Uh, Nick, I didn't think it matched the uh, chemistry no, of Michael Caine. It doesn't match the thing. chemistry. Because they are, they don't work well together. Neither it just didn't it's, work. It's good. It's not great. And it's certainly not a patch on the original. No, uh, the middle one now. The, the middle one that <laughs> we have to include. We have to include those words for Jeff's. Yeah, and, and the original nature. one, trust me, if you think this partnership doesn't work, watch the one of David Niven and Marlon Brando in Bedtime Story. That is excruciatingly bad. I did think, come the end of the film, I believed in the friendship of the three of them. When they flashed forward to that sequence in London, I thought they, it re- they really gelled for me. I thought it, it, it was quite a satisfying ending. Where they jumped in the little boat and went off for fish and chips. And, yeah, that whole thing of hiding under the tree and, oh, I like the way you did that. And, yeah. you know, the interplay between them. So I thought that was, yeah, I thought that was that was really good. There, there are moments where it almost falls. You know, I like the dark humour of the piece. 
it almost becomes saccharine on occasion. Yes, it does. Yes. Uh, and mainly, again, that's Rebel Wilson that's behind that yeah. because Anne Hathaway's character stays dark throughout. She mm. doesn't really give in on anything. So after the film, I, I thought, oh, I didn't like Rebel Wilson at all. Who could you put in her place? And I, well, all of the modern comedic actresses are all heavily into improv and I don't think no it's that's the problem they all end up with improv unless you put another actress in place and there's plenty of young actresses that could have done that part and could have done the uh, even even when she went full Ruprecht Mm. um, as a reference to the previous film it just do you know what I would give it's it funny to? for a bit, and then I just thought, no. But the re- was Steve Mar- but Martin as Ruprecht was yeah. just genius. Yeah, but but Steve Martin. Do you know Steve what? Martin. I, yeah. I would have given it to and loved to see the interplay between the two of them. Captain Hathaway, Maisie Williams. Oh, a bugger! I was going to say that as well. <laughs> oh, that Great is minds think alike. Spooky. Yeah. Sp- oh, yeah, Maisie Williams. I, I think, think yeah. she's got good. good comedic timing. I reckon the work between her and the Hound in the Game of Thrones. As you is say, you brilliant. could have. You could have put a, if you if somebody wrote a script and they stuck to it. If they'd both have stuck to it and everything, had, I think it might have worked. But then, yeah. I don't know. And and I keep coming back to this. I sat alongside you and you laughed. I know, throughout. I laugh at all sorts of things. I laugh at but you. That's a, well, yeah. <laughs> but so yeah, carry pick, on. Yeah, I want to pick up on the cinematography because I like Michael Coulter's work. So he's a guy that started on Gregory's Girl and a lot of British comedies. And I thought the lightness of tone uh, that he brought to this film, I thought was really good. And again, by making it, as light and as fun, I think that helped the comedy for me. Um, Not really? Yeah. No, I was. France convinced. was sunny. Yeah, London Britain was, was dark. a bit dour. Uh, Britain was dark because inside the night. lights were on. No, I no, but it's about lighting and how you sh- how you echo it. Most of it, most of the houses, because of the way they were, had to be brilliantly lit all the time. Some of that is very difficult to do in a film, you know. Especially with the lightning cruise. Um, yeah, I mean, he's got an incredible pedigree and he, but Gregory's got one of my favourite films of all time. Yeah. Um, so I can't say anything bad about him, but I just don't think he was stretching himself on this one. Well, again, you know, if, if you look at the, the sequences in Anne Hathaway's house... The set the dressing of, was lovely. And, and it's tinged. Everything is tinged with gold, as yeah. though this is the money that they're trying yeah. to get. I, I just thought he did a tremendous job, more so than I would say the music and Dudley was good, but it was nothing sort of out of the ordinary. And in fact, reminded me a hell of a lot of Mild Goods. You know, we, we talked about, well, Neil has said that it, it's a carbon copy of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, but her work was very, very similar to Miles Goodman's work on that film. We'll have to trust you on that. I didn't spot any music at all in it. OK, well, do you want to sum up? Well, it could have been a lot better. Yeah, OK, I laughed. You could have laughed less. Uh, <laughs> improv versus a proper script. Get somebody other than Rebel Wilson to do, well, play Rebel, Rebel Wilson, basically. Amazing. Um, it's it's Let's what, start a petition. It was Maisie Williams. Yeah, way less than subtle. Uh, and if that's your thing, go for it. I enjoyed it. Uh, I was convinced by the critics that it was going to be terrible, and it wasn't. So that's my summation. It wasn't terrible. There, put that on the poster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah, wasn't yeah. terrible. You've, you've, got, you've got a role in the future. <laughs> uh, Anne Hathaway is almost as good as her dad in this remake. And 
<laughs> it, it's it's the first flop of the summer. I think that's just totally unfair. It hasn't been really given a chance on it. If you think about it, Avengers Endgame has been eating everything up. But what's been coming out, even Aladdin, you know, this these films are just eating up money at the moment. We're about possibly to see the second one. Brightburn hasn't got off to a great start, but it is a low-budget film, so it'll make its money back. But we'll see. But I think, yeah, it's a shame. It's It's definitely worth seeking out. And if you like The Hustle, then you may also like these movies, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which we've referred to through without. Clearly a film Neil likes more than this. Definitely, and, and, and so should most <laughs> and, people. And everybody, yeah. I think everybody Yeah, agrees. even you do, I believe, because that's what you wrote here. <laughs> Ghostbusters, the all-female version, of course. It's actually I, a really good film. And, and it I does enjoyed get a, that one. I what, agree. The, yeah. I like I that one. Oh, I think that film has got a lot better balance of scares and laughs than the original did. Mm. Uh, and if you want to talk about impro, then you go back and watch the first Ghostbusters and watch how much improvisation was in that. Mm. In the loop, in a sense, the crossover <laughs> film between The Thick of It and Veep as a really good performance from Chris Addison when he was just an actor. And finally, and one Neil has mentioned earlier, Ocean's 8, another caper film with an all-star cast, which is good fun if you exclude the awful Sandra Bullock. OK, so that's the end of our review section. What is our film of the month? So, of the three films we've reviewed, what's the film of the month? The simple short answer is Endgame. That's definitely the best film of the three. The Hustle. Um, in order, I would say Endgame, Tolkien, and The Hustle. And um, surprisingly, The Hustle's not as bad as the review suggests. I Absolutely. Mean, it's not great, but I laughed quite a bit, actually. Yeah, so, yeah. it's not um, as good as Longshot, but, uh, yeah, it's not that, that bad. But, but talking of my comment about films having things in them that, like, sort of pay off, depending yeah. on your knowledge of them, I thought Tolkien pays off a huge amount if you've seen and recall sections of Lord of the Rings because there's quite a lot of imagery that matches into that. Film of the month, Graham? My film of the month was definitely Endgame. Jeff is going to be what? The Hustle. Hustle, you're kidding me. Um, And I'm Endgame, so... Phil? He's already said Endgame. Double check, he might have changed his mind after this conversation. (laughs) Definitely Endgame. He said Endgame, Tolkien, and then The Hustle. Which is the same as mine. Yeah. I'm, I've got a memory. Draw an end over that. I feel I won. Uh, <laughs> well, let's, well done. Let's see, let's see what the final edit says. Eh? Well done. Let's move on, Jeff. Yeah. Phil, thank you very much, mate. Thank you, Phil. Um, a pleasure. So that was our film of the month, which kept some people happy. What else have we been watching? Let's go and have a look at that. Graham, over to you. For me this month, I've been watching a lot of streaming TV and a couple of great movies. Uh, Movies first. Beast. This was one recommended by a friend of the pod, Phil Foster. A troubled woman, Jessie Buckley, living on the island of Jersey, finds herself pulled between the control of her oppressive family and the allure of a strange young man called Pascal Renouf, played by Johnny Flynn. Mix into that dark-crossed lover story, a serial killer and a local police force completely out of their depth, and you have the makings of an excellent drama. But the writing and the direction from Michael Pierce take this to another level. Buckley and Flynn are great as the lovers, and the sense of slightly off-kilter story, which the cinematographer seems to revel in, turns this into an absolute little gem. The final five minutes of this film 
are exceptional from the moment the couple go for dinner at the seafront open air restaurant to the end credits is just a brilliant shredding of what you thought this film was about i cannot recommend it enough brilliant brilliant film i also went to see john wick 3 parabellum which i thoroughly enjoyed Unlike Jeff. (laughs) But we will come on to that in a minute, I'm sure. There was only one point in the whole film where I thought it could have done with a bit more editing, but apart from that, I smile from start to finish. And finally, like Jeff, I watched The Shawshank Redemption again for a feature on our local radio station. What a brilliant movie. As close to perfection as any movie has the right to be. I absolutely loved it again. Right, on TV streaming, I've watched The Wandering Earth, which is an absolutely bonkers Chinese sci-fi film. It's really one of the strangest things I've watched in a long time. I loved it. Apart from it being absolutely crazy and none of the actual physics works correctly, but it was brilliant. And in contrast to that, I watched Salvation on Netflix Terrible acting, terrible story, and the most ludicrous solution to an incoming planet-killer asteroid I have ever watched. This was so bad, it made The Wandering Earth look like a masterpiece. If you want to watch a terrible movie about approaching asteroids, avoid this and watch Bruce Willis's Armageddon. It's also terrible, but not as terrible as Salvation. (laughs) Director's cut of Armageddon's brilliant. (laughs) Game of Thrones Season 8, I am apparently... The only person on the entire planet who liked Series 8, and I loved the last episode. I cannot wait now to read the books and get all the detail that was missed in the last two seasons of the show. Finally, I watched Snowpiercer. Finally got to watch the South Korean film director, John Ho Bong's seminal masterwork. I loved it from beginning to end. It's not really sci-fi, it's more a social allegory. And of course, as we record this, the director has just won the palm door for his latest film, Parasite. Also, lots of Star Trek, but Jeff always groans when I mention Star Trek, so I'll pass on to you, eye-rolling Jeff. Thank you, Graham. So let's start. John Wick 3, Parabellum, or Bell End, I like to think of it. (laughs) The third and by far the least of the John Wick films. Oh, it was great. It opens well. Fantastic. Yeah, that's right, Neil. You're just being otherwise. You know that the hustle's better than dirty rotten scoundrels, (laughs) and you know that John Wick three is the worst of the three. It has two fight sequences that are inventive and clever, but then after about twenty minutes, the filmmakers packed up and went home, and just turned on a video game on repeat with no character development. There's no tension by now because. Clearly, John Wick is just another bloody superhero. He can't die. And the open ending means there'll be a fourth John John Wick, who gives a shit, which (laughs) I hope will never get made enough. However, if you thought that was bad, the curse of La Llorona, compared to this latest horror outing from the Conjuring filmmakers... Perhaps John Wick 3 wasn't all that bad. (laughs) (laughs) A tale of ghostly or demonic revenge. I don't think it ever actually makes it clear but it's about as pointless as one of Neil's reviews. The only good thing in this film is the performance of Linda Cardellini, other than that, avoid. The Shawshank Redemption, in case you thought everything I saw, I hated this month, Graham and I rewatched this for a piece we did for Nicky Price's show on Radio Gloucestershire. Classic storytelling, great characters, absorbing story, hell, even the narration works. One of the greatest movies of all time. For TV, Game of Thrones Season 8. Well... You've heard Graham's opinion. This is a controversial last season. Many fans hated it. But when you compare it 
with the ending of many series and Lost, I'm looking at you. Oh, yeah, It absolutely. actually isn't that bad. It does wrap up many of the loose ends and it feels like a finish. It's just a shame they couldn't afford the lighting for the battle <laughs> against the dead. This isn't radio. We do need to see what's going on. Barry, season two, a real highlight. Bill Hader stars as Barry, the ice-cold killer for hire who wants to change his life now he has discovered acting. This season is a little slow to get going. However, by the midpoint of the series, it just keeps it in high after high. The craziness of episode five, where Barry's trying to let someone live and battle a 12-year-old ninja master, is one of the best half hours of TV for years. If you haven't seen Barry yet, try and find it. You will not be disappointed. So is it a 12-year-old who's a ninja master, or is it a ninja master who's been a ninja master for 12 years? A 12-year-old. It is just barking mad. <laughs> For radio, whatever happened to the Lightly Lads? Now, back in 1975... <laughs> the... Really? On radio? Yeah, yeah. That's where they all started. No, no, this Amazing didn't start. No, this, this came after. Oh, right. Yeah, so back oh, in no. 1975, the BBC turned Dick LeCrement's and Ian Lafrenet's wonderful comedy series into a first-rate radio series. However, the tapes were wiped and it was thought long gone. Luckily, a fan had recorded them and then turned them all over to the BBC to restore. It's brilliant. It's as funny and as sad as when it was on TV, and it truly deserves the title classic. It was originally The Likely Lads on TV. So The Likely Lads was in the 60s. Yeah. And then and this then came back in this the came back as 75, and, and then, then they did the TV version. No, 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 no. It's the other way around. They did the TV yeah. version first, oh. and this came second. Okay. Um, so the TV series, whatever happened to the Likely Lads, was 73, 74, and they decided to do... Now, I think they did it... There's 13 parts to this. Now, whether they did it as two series like they did that TV series, yeah. or whether they put it all together, but it just works so well. And, and it possibly works well to me because... I mean, I know all the all the shows intimately anyway, yeah. so you've always got that. But again, I mean, that show, and you must remember this one, the one with the football where oh, they're trying to hide the from the school. Well, that, yes. James yeah, so Bolan. James Bolin, is, as Terry Collier, is fishing. And uh, he's, he's, he's alongside the canal. Rodney Booth comes up and uh, he turns to Rodney Booth and says, I'd offer you a can, but I've only got six left myself. <laughs> <laughs> he said, and, and Rodney Booth goes, and he's just talking about life and it's down, and he says, and in the chocolate box of life, the top layer's already gone and someone's nicked the orange cream from underneath. <laughs> Just a classic. That, that film has now gone to the top of my must-rewatch. Yeah. yeah. Over to you, Neil. For me, long shot. Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen is considerably better than The Hustle. Politics and humour. Theron is really good doing the comedy. Surprisingly, it's, she is extremely capable okay veep and the thick of it do the same and better and in the loop is more cynical and serious politics but this is pretty good theron and rogan work well together i don't know how but it just works it's surprising and there are some excellent lines are oh, there some very rude lines as well which we're not going to repeat here um it's way better than hustle as i say hathaway rebel wilson versus theron and rogan just no contest really john wick three parabellum we've all reviewed it and if you've as far as i'm concerned if you've enjoyed episodes one and two you'll love this one lots of gunfights and martial arts but there's also several twists and the politics of the internet 
international assassinations, the top table. At this point, it gets really good in the introduction of the auditor. It's not the auditor, is it? It's, no, um, I was told off for that. Adjudicator. adjudicator. It's when it starts outgrowing the original too, I think. Yeah. The film takes time to include some comedy. Nice suit, John. And he shot my dog, John. Yeah. I get that. The lines, what do you need? Guns, lots of guns. The director said, could you just do this once? They did the take several times. And could you just do this once? Promised it wouldn't go in the movie. And it's in the trailer and in the film. Rocket Man, which I saw this morning, sneaked uh, can, can, can in. Can I just walk you back to John McTree? The other thing that I thought, Halle Berry was great. Yes. That scene in the marketplace where the two of them are fighting together. With the dogs was, with and the everything. Dogs was brilliant. Oh, they yeah. went on. That's what I said. They just turned a video game on and went home. Oh. The bit with Jerome Flynn was interesting. I quite like that. And he gets but the moment shot it's, the... Yeah, the moment they start the shootout, am I just, uh, oh, no, I just go to sleep, wake up five hours later and it's still going. Oh. Oh, it's John Wick. Rocket Man. Fantastic. Captain Fantastic. Uh, what, uh, what's and all? A lot more realis- realistic and there's a lot more reality than uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Dexter Fletcher, who did the whole of this film, instead of a whole load of Bohemian Rhapsody and not credited for it, can I, I thought it was really good. Can you stop stopping me? No, can I just... I didn't just, stop I, you. Well, you were more than entitled to. But I, I just want to pick up on a point, and, and we were talking off-air earlier, and you were saying about Dexter Fletcher filming it. I think it's interesting that Elton John allowed them to do what they want. Yes. But yeah. the Queen members didn't allow them well, to I do what they want. Well, I think this is important. I mean, he did do, as I mentioned, this um, tantrums and tiaras. I'm sure there's something like that, where he sort of opened up what his life was while he was drinking, all the cocaine, all the drugs that he could think of. The way they do it is really clever. The start is in a a help group where he says, my name's Elton John and I'm an alcoholic, I'm a um, a sex addict, a drug addict, and I've had all the drugs, etc. And it goes from there and it's actually really quite clever and keeps popping back into this as sort of going through his life. And it's it's extremely good. Um, uh, I thought him and Jamie Bell worked really well together, Jamie Bell playing uh, Bernie Tarpin. I thought that was excellent, two brothers as they were. Both young Reggies and, more uh, slash Elton, Matthew Islesley and uh, Kit Connor were exceptional. They were really very good as the sort of young Elton starting to play the piano and sing. I thought it was very, very well done. Uh, Reggie's parents, Stephen McIntosh, and the unrecognisable Bryce Dallas Howard just fantastic but they were awful parents but you'll get that in the film i thoroughly enjoyed it and i watched it uh, as we're recording this about 10 hours ago so um it's still fresh in the memory um and game of thrones yeah 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 okay we've got the take out the character story development and all that and we'll just cut to the good bits it's been done no point in complaining what's done finished yes yeah. so you're not complaining it, but you didn't like it uh, no I did I did I like the way they tied up all the loose ends your point is valid lots and lots of other shows that have gone on for six plus series have ended spectacularly badly and a lot of them do. They drift away. So it could have gone on for 18 series. Because it's a massive set of books. But I'm just absolutely pumped now for the books. Yeah. I just want to find yeah. out all the fine granular detail that I, the TV show couldn't do because they were rushing to finish it. Yes. 
and I, I understand why the filmmakers want to do something else. And, they've they've and, been on and, it nine years. Yeah, yeah. Like, you'd be bored. And and probably pre- uh, previous to that as well. Mm. Plus, um, they've got a lucrative contract for Star Wars films. Have they? Yeah. Okay, next month. As for next month, we are changing our review format, shorter views and more films, from current to classics. On the current films, expect our words of wisdom and Jeff's rants on some of the following. X-Men Dark Phoenix, Men in Black International, why do I get the bloody superhero nonsense? Shaft and Toy Story 4, do they go together? Yeah, some things should be shafted in these films. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another at the flicks is in the can, so it only remains for us to say... Still not happy about the films we'll be reviewing this summer. Jeff, you are never happy. Being miserable makes us happy. (laughs) And to everyone else, thanks Thanks for listening listening and goodbye. I've seen that movie too